Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, featuring sermons and lectures by Kevin Morris in an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Great to have you with me for another episode on Teaching Thursdays. You should know this by now, but if you are new, then welcome. Just to bring you up to speed, what we're doing is working our way through the letter First Peter in the New Testament, and we're doing so from beginning to end. So we've made our way all the way through chapter 1, the first eight verses of chapter 2, and now we're going to be picking up where we left off, verse number 9 in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12 today, and here's what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you, As evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's what the text says. We have a pretty remarkable transition happening. Remember last week when we were going through verses 1 through 8, there was the theme of the stone. Jesus was the cornerstone. All of those who trust in him become living stones, that beautiful imagery of a stone is dead, but what is dead is given life, we become living stones. But those who reject Jesus, who do not trust in him as the cornerstone, the warning and the terrible outcome for them is that Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling. And The biblical imagery is much more severe because what Peter's doing here is he's quoting Isaiah 8, 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Or Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When Jesus uses these verses in the Gospels, the imagery is pretty severe because what he says is not only do those who reject him stumble over him, but that when they stumble and hit the ground, they're cut into pieces. They, they're shattered is really the, the image that's being used. So we're not talking about just um, a rejection of Jesus, no thanks, I'll go on about my life, but that the rejection is literally the destruction of the person. It is the death of them to reject Jesus. That's what's being said. So now Peter transitions, verse 9, but you And then he goes on to communicate to us what is true about us. So what we see here is we should be glad. We should be joyful. We should be considering how we have fared in the realm of honor by receiving and by enjoying Christ as our cornerstone. Peter breaks into this wonderful reality with great New Testament direction as to how we should understand the Old Testament and our connection to it. That's what he's doing, by the way. Again and again, we see these citations from the Old Testament, even when it 
doesn't say explicitly as it is written or so that this would be fulfilled, you should know that there are tons and tons of Old Testament quotations or allusions that are all over the place in the New Testament. The more that we realize that, the more we see the connection and the singularity between what's taught in the Old Testament and what's taught in the New Testament. One of the worst things in our day and age is that we are living in the aftermath of the dispensational movement. The dispensational movement is not an anti-Christian movement. I don't want to disrespect my brothers and sisters in Christ who would be dispensational, but the dispensational movement as it began was heretical because what it taught was that there were two ways of salvation, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. Or even if you want to say there's one way of salvation, the way that God's people were saved was different in the Old as it was in the New because two different things are happening. The ethnic Jews are being saved in the Old Testament and Gentiles are being saved in the New Testament. Well, that kind of compartmentalization of the Bible is not biblical. It doesn't stand the test of biblical scrutiny. And although I think there have been great efforts to kind of reel us back in as a whole, generally speaking, back to the better understanding of the Bible as it was historically understood, as yes, there is a discontinuity because you have an Old and a New Testament, or an Old Covenant and a New Covenant, but God's plan remains the same. He's not changing the terms of salvation, or he's not going from plan A to plan B, or plan B to plan C. So, while there is discontinuity, there is certainly continuity. That was always what was understood historically. But today, we're in an awkward place, because while dispensationalism is on the decline, by and large, in my estimation, we're now in a capitalistic Uh, environment of theology, which really means this. If you want to be a dispensationalist, go ahead. If you don't, go ahead to each his own. And I'm not saying that we should have uh, executions or anything like this or kick people out of the the country uh, for (laughs) believing differently. What I am saying is that this take-it-or-leave-it environment might even be worse Because what it does is it takes the level of seriousness down from level 10, where it should be, to zero. If you want to believe this, you can. If you don't believe this, no problem. Go on about your day. Well, we can't do that with the Bible. We have to hang on every word that's said, every jot and tittle. We have to embrace everything that is said to us, and that includes how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. It includes how we understand what's being communicated to us. What is the newness of the New Testament? What is the oldness of the old? And what is the connection between the two? 
Now, sometimes the Bible goes way more explicit in answering that question. Other times, we simply watch and learn from the biblical writers, and what we're watching and learning is how they're using the Old Testament. If you want to know how the New Testament applies and how to understand it, the proper lens, the right way to interpret it, the best fail-safe method is simply look at how it's used in the New Testament. And again, it's used right here all over the place. This whole passage is all about using the Old Testament. Okay, so that was a little bit of an excursion, but so important for us to understand that at the outset here, because otherwise we're going to miss what Peter's doing and how he's connecting the dots for us. So, the first point I want to make is Israel, ethnic Israel, nation in the Old Testament, was a chosen people. So now we, as believers of all tribes and tongues, enjoy the peculiarity of being God's chosen people. That's his point right there in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So there you have a quote right there from Isaiah 61, 9. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we're a royal priesthood, just as the Levites were those called and ordained to the priesthood with stipulations and selectivity. There's an analogy happening here. There's this big analogy being woven together. Believers all share in the universal priesthood of the saints without the hierarchy of such an office. We're all equal priests for God. And third, we're a holy nation, just as Israel lived with the law unto holy living. Be holy, for I am holy. That was the Lord's words to Israel. So we, as believers, are being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ so that we may be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Fourth point, we're a people for God's own possession, just as Israel was redeemed, i.e. purchased by God to be his, there is a purchase price for us, and that's the blood of Christ. The end of verse 9 ties together the beginning by answering the question. So think back to the beginning of First Peter, where elect exiles, we talked about the election that we enjoyed, the choosing of God to be our God, and for us to be his people. You have that revisited here. Why is it that we were chosen? And then Peter tells us the answer for that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, this is so important for us to understand. We have been chosen, in other words, we've been chosen not because of, but so that. When you think about election from a human standpoint, God choosing us from a human standpoint, election does not happen because of, but so that. The choosing purposes of God are to make much of Him because. We were not called out because we dwelled in the light, 
we were chosen out of darkness. So as to remind us that we are not, as God's people, better than. We're a redeemed people. We're a bought. We're a rescued people. The choosing of God is the qualifying work of God in us. It has been said that God does not qualify, that God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And I think this is certainly the case in salvation from a biblical standpoint. The precious cornerstone of Christ, who is set upon us, covering us in his perfection by his work on the cross, it qualifies us as the beginning of God's good work in us. And then it sanctifies us as God's progressive work. And then it glorifies us as God's finished work. And this is the case in being called into his marvelous light. It denotes a transition that takes place. We were in darkness. We're not only now not in darkness, but we are in this marvelous light. And this calling of being in this marvelous light is a once for all thing that God accomplishes, but in time and space, it's a continual progression. So you think about when God saves us, when the blood of Christ is applied to us, we're justified immediately, never to be unjustified. And we're justified by faith in Christ, believing in what he has done, trusting in his work, trusting in who he is, in his claims. That can never be taken away from us when that occurs. And when that occurs, we have along with it the assurance, because it can never be taken away, that we, although on this earth, still plagued by sin, still fighting against temptation, still failing in many aspects of our lives, day in and day out, that we are promised that we will not only one day arrive in glory, to speak of it in point of destination, that we'll arrive in glory, we'll be fully glorified, no more indwelling sin in us, no more temptation, no more propensity to do what displeases God, but we will be perfected. As people, we won't become gods, but we will be perfect humanity. But the in-between is sometimes up for grabs, depending on who you talk to. They could say, since the beginning is definitive, we're justified, that means we're going to be glorified. The in-between doesn't really matter because I can't lose my salvation. And of course, this is a distortion of understanding what salvation is, what it means to be justified. Peter uses such strong language in terms of being bought, belonging to, moving out of darkness, that he wants us to understand that when God says, be holy as I am holy, he actually means that. And we will actually become more and more holy. He referred to this in chapter 1. He says, as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. If he's your father, if you belong to him, if you're part of his family, it is not only your privilege, but your responsibility to live as becoming of the family to which you belong to. And we call this sanctification. This isn't something that we just do on our own. This is still God's work in us, but it is necessary. 
we have been saved so that. Remember, we've been saved so that. Not because of, not because of our track record, not because it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, God just decided to do it, but so that we might not only move out of darkness into marvelous light, but that we might worship Him and fellowship with Him. It's an active thing we see here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, this doesn't just mean gospel preaching, proclaiming, but it means testifying to something that's presently true. It's not just that He called you out of darkness into light, but you're testifying to the fact that you are currently in His marvelous light, i.e., you are growing in holiness. You are being sanctified. You are fellowshipping with God. You are no longer belonging to the darkness. This is such a strong emphasis that, that Peter gives here, and we ought not to miss it. It's so important for us to understand. So when we come to verse 10, that was all verse 9, by the way, <laughs> when we come to verse 10, Peter points us to an inference of Hosea. So we've looked at the Old Testament of the Israelites, a nation as a whole, that we as believers can also be designated as a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Not two, but one. Ethnic Israel and non-ethnic Israel are all that chosen race, are all the royal priesthood, are all a holy nation, because it's predicated upon Christ, not geography. So we're talking about one people of God here. But then he moves on and makes another Old Testament reference of Hosea. And this is in regard to the phrase, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is from Hosea 1.6 and 1.9-10, where God pronounces the judgment of Israel as a removal of mercy and a removal of their status of being God's people. The application that's being used here by Peter is really important because it touches on the severity of our guilt and the wonder of God's mercy upon us. We have indeed transgressed by offering ourselves as prostitutes, as unfaithful brides to the world, to be used and overtaken by all of the devil's designs and deceptions that solicit us on a daily basis. And what's more, though they deceive us as being what the Hebrew author calls the fleeting pleasures of of sin, there's still pleasures. So we have this kind of broken, distorted sense of desire and passion, one, one that's tainted by sin. And this is the most disgusting thing that we can do when we sin against God is give ourselves faithfully to evil and unfaithfully to God. We're devoted to sin, devoted to evil, and totally undevoted to God. Once we had not been a people. And once we had not received mercy. We were walking in darkness. But God redeems the unfaithful bride in Hosea and cleanses her. And he uses Hosea's own life 
as his wife is unfaithful to him, and he goes and she's offering herself as a prostitute to all the men of the city, and he goes and purchases her back because of his unrelenting, devoted love to her, to her, and to make her his beloved bride yet again. It's fascinating that this, this is the imagery of all things that Peter decides to use to describe us as believers. Now, he's not talking about what is true of us as believers, that we're supposed to be in this teeter-totter, back and forth, but he's describing the transition that has taken place, what he just called, out of darkness into his marvelous light. How dark is darkness? Well, that's one of the images that the Bible gives us. It's like a bride who leaves her husband and won't be in a deep, committed relationship with him, but yet she will offer herself freely to anyone else who passes by. That is what it is to be in darkness. It is not a state of neutrality. It is a state that we willingly submit ourselves to everything else and everyone else except for God, and we actively neglect and despise him. That's what it is to be in darkness. And Peter says that transition of being like that versus being in his marvelous light is what has happened to us. We were totally dead, and then we've been made alive. We've been born again, Peter said. We've been chosen to belong to God as living stones to see Jesus as a precious cornerstone. We, we never should get tired of understanding the good news of the good news, the good news of the gospel, the glory of our salvation. And that's why Peter, here now in verse 11, he exhorts us to take to the battlefield. And why is that? Well, it's because we're not in glory. We haven't, again, to use that term, terminology of destination, we haven't arrived in glory yet. We're still here. Our relationship with God has been totally reconciled, totally transformed from hostility to fellowship and union. And yet, we are not at glory where we can enjoy him without any reality of sin and temptation. We're still not only fighting it internally, but we're subjected to it externally in a broken world. So, how should we live? What should our response be? Well, Peter's answer in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He wants us to know we're still in a battle. We should take to the battlefield. We are not yet at home with our beloved Lord. In fact, we're still exiles. We're sojourners. And if I could borrow from John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, we are in a place that we might call Vanity Fair. That chapter is so fascinating in Pilgrim's Progress because as 
Christian is on his way to the heavenly city, he has to pass through a fair. And the fair is called Vanity Fair. And if you can understand or guess what the fair is comprised of, the answer is vanity. Vanity of all types. Vanity of all sorts. We continue to be just as Christian is with his friends as he has to pass through this fair. We continue to be solicited by the satanic designs and deceptions in this world, which is why Peter so carefully designates these fleshly passions, literally lusts, as that which wages war against our souls. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, as you well know. And these tempestuous attacks, if I can use lofty language, are aimed at our souls. They're not aimed at our feet. They're not aimed at our hands. They're aimed all the way in. As John Owen says, Satan looks for any vein he can find, but the point is to follow that vein all the way to the heart. That's really what he's trying to do. The point of entrance doesn't matter. It's where he's trying to get to. And we can get so caught up on whatever the point of entrance might be that we forget what's really at stake is our souls or our hearts in that analogy. Satan does this. This is the battle that we're in. It doesn't look like a traditional battlefield where war takes place. This is a battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. In this fight, we must win by being active, not passive. And this truth is one that Peter gives us specifics for, but suffice to say that Peter uses the second half of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 for specifics in this warfare of desire. So leading into the specifics, he touches on this title, Honorable Conduct. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This family, this transition that's taken place in you, how are you supposed to express that? How are you supposed to look to the world? He says, conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We should live honorably. It is really no surprise that whenever we think about battles and warriors and all of that, what you hear in stories, what you hear in movies that depict these fantastic warriors, that their relationship among one another and the way that they look to the rest of the world, while strong or brave or courageous are often words used to describe them, one of the most significant ones that can be given to them is honor. Men who honor one another as warriors Honor them because they don't fall prey to any one situation. They don't give up. They, they don't give in. They don't fall prey to whatever might be happen, happening. They, they don't forget that they are fighting. And it's these kind of warriors, these kind of men on the battlefield that are worthy of honor. That should be the takeaway phrase 
used to describe warriors who are truly warriors. Peter says, as we are fighting against these passions and lusts that wage war against our soul, our response on the battlefield that happens and continues to be where we are as exiles, the way that we should be described by those who see us is honorable. That means we don't compromise the reality that we are in a battle and give in at one of the booths or one of the parades in Vanity Fair as we're passing through. It says, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, he says two things, that our conduct should be honorable. And then he points us to the reality of good deeds. So, take that all together. As warriors, we should be continually waging war against the things that are waging war against us, whether we like it or not. These passions of the flesh. And in doing so, our conduct should be deemed honorable to the rest of the world. And even when they have something negative to say of us, they don't have a leg to stand on because they see our good deeds. So we should be fighting the good fight, we should be honorable, and we should be displaying good deeds to the world in such a way, he says, that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a lot, and he, again, he uses the whole second half of this chapter and all of chapter 3 to really get into the details of what he's talking about here. But we as believers, in every aspect, at every waking moment, should be found honorable and good. And if that sounds devastating to you, Let me remind you what we've already been told, that we should be holy, not from a human standpoint, but holy as God himself is holy. So if these terrify you, (laughs) let me just remind you that these are really setting the bar low in terms of what word we're using. Honorable and good is a much easier thing to pull off than God's own holiness, but yet that is what we're called to. We aspire to that. Even as we fail, the expectation, the gift that we have is that this is how we are to live every moment, because it's who we are. It's who we're supposed to be. It's who we aspire to be, that our life would reflect the inward reality that we've been transformed. And that's Amazing. As exiles, the world will not bless us. The world will speak evil against us. It's interesting to me that Peter implies a great importance of evangelism in our good deeds. The very ones who see our good deeds, though they spoke against us and continue to speak against us, will glorify God, having seen and witnessed true religion. We must overcome evil with good for the sake of the war and for the sake of its outcome. So Peter moves into the specifics of this honorable conduct 
and good deeds in subsequent verses. But I might just say, as a preface to those, that it really matters that we take this seriously. It is a very unfortunate thing that in our world, we as Christians want to play the victim game so much that when the world says the church is just a bunch of hypocrites, the church is just a bunch of judgmental, snobby people, that we give up and simply agree with them as a way to win them over by transparency. But let me encourage and challenge all of you who are listening that this does not compute with the testimony of Scripture. Peter doesn't say, try to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, but when they speak against you, agree with them that we're all hypocrites after all. No. He says, they will see our good deeds, and we will be honorable to them, so that if they lay a charge against us, it will be a false accusation. That's what should be the case for people on this side of glory, I might add. We have no leg to stand on when we simply agree with the world and say, you're right, we look just like you. Why don't we all get together and form a bigger church? We should be bothered tremendously when the world does have an accusation against us that sticks. Because although we are told in the Bible that we will continue to sin, and anybody who suggests differently, even as a Christian, is actually lying about their salvation because we're not promised that we will never sin. But we are promised that we've been given the Holy Spirit and freed from the bondage of sin, so much so on this side of heaven, that any time we do sin, it is totally by choice, and it is totally inexcusable. So now that the intensity has built all the way back to level 10, let's see what Peter has to say about these good deeds and honorable living And we'll look at that next time we're together on Teaching Thursdays.